are listening to Unleashed, and we are so glad to have you here. And as always, remember, we are the resistance. Why are we the resistance? Because we are tackling stuff that is is big and life-changing. We're just going to go after it, like today. Um, you know, today's episode is going to be really cool because we're going to be completing, you know, week five of the Big Five Man Killers. Actually, it'll be week six because we did two weeks on the very first, uh, the... Um, uh, man killer number one. But before we get started, Eric, what do you got for us today? Questioning thing come in? Yes. I have a question from now. I don't know how to pronounce this. It looks like it's spelled Jan, like J-A-N. But could from watch Yawn? Yeah, from watching Dr. Pole, I wonder if it's Yawn. It could be. The guy. Now so, you're going to make me yawn, dude. I know. Sorry. <sighs> That's a great first name, though. Uh, <laughs> So Jan wants to know, have you ever hunted any big game um, in around Denmark, Norway, anywhere around in there? I have not. I okay. have not. Um, I really, I, I was there back in the mid 80s. I was in music and doing some touring through the area, but I, I have not hunted there. Okay. Jan, you want to set me up here? There you go. <laughs> you know, it probably is that I have a friend from Finland and his name is spelled J-A-R-M-O, and it's Yarmo. So Jan would make sense, okay. being the J being the Y. And I could totally be wrong. I have no idea, but that sounds right. So we we do have, uh, not that the general audience may not care, but we do have our fan bases. It is, at this point, I, I notice we've got somebody listening in San Paulo, Brazil, Norway, Finland, wow. Belgium. Um, so, well, to, to the, my friends in Finland, um, yeah. that's like, Hey, what's up? Okay. That's about all I know. Oh, well, it's more than I know. So, <laughs> and did we have one more question? Yeah. So, uh, Steve from Wyoming wanted to know this, uh, he's new into hunting and he wanted to know it. Why is it that people go out so early and hunt? Uh, I, he, it was, I think he was kind of getting at, can he hunt? maybe late at night or does it have to be early? Does it have to do with feeding? Like, Well, obviously you can't do late at night. And if you do, you're probably going to have a game warden with some fake animal out there making it move in its head and trying to catch you. But I don't think that's what you're, he meant. But well, so, yeah, like, no, in the, I think, I mean, it's kind of what I was, I gleaned from it is, you know, I don't well, do the well, predator hunting and a lot of guys, you know, do predator hunting and like overnight. No, I did in Africa, you know, we would be out there and, uh, you know, so you're not allowed to hunt at night. I honestly, I don't know the regulations on predator. Like you know, some guys, that's what their specialty is. I, a lot of the outdoor shows I go, this, all the coyotes and everything, you know, they're all set up for all this. That's just not been my, my thing. But now if he would have asked a question and let me just kind of maybe go back and saying, you know, early morning in the evening, you know, what is the best time to hunt? Now that yeah. I can, because sure. that's, that's my background. I would say, you know, it, it, all game animals, right? They have a place where they bed. They have a place where they go for water. They have a place where they, they feed. But, you know, animals, you know, at nighttime, they, sometimes like elk, they'll move out into the edge of the fields to stay away from the wolves and different things. And so in, in, the, in the, like with, with, with deer, with coyotes, same kind of a deal. They'll be out, you know, in the fields. So the best time to hunt you know, it's trying to catch that first hour and last hour of daylight is actually the best time. Are there other feeding times? Yeah, you can actually get feeding charts. Um, just just Google it. Feeding charts for, you know, where you live. It'll give you the hours of the day, like a, a prime feeding time and a secondary feeding time. You know, this is, you know, we're recording this right now, you know, in, in October. And we're just about done with the month. But I'm not, 
I'm not an early morning hunter in October because I've, I've just, from my experience, um, they're just not as active um, as they're going to be like in the evening time. And so I just don't want to waste a lot. Cause you know, when you're, when you're out there, I, I don't hunt all day in early season. I just don't. But the closer you start getting to rut, temperatures are getting colder. You know, your acorns have fallen. You know, you've got the corn being cut, so they're not staying in the corn. There's other, you know, things that are happening that are creating more and more movement. And so I, I love getting out, you know, and, uh, you know, say it was getting dark at 730. I like being in my tree stand by about three. You know, they're, they're probably, they did their mid-afternoon feeding. They've gone back and bedded down and they're coming back out again. But just enough time to, to be back in there so that you're not stepping on them. You know, and again, entrance and exit, you know, to your tree stand is so important, knowing what the wind is doing. But man, when late October, um, November gets here, you know, when's the best time to be in the woods? Yes. <laughs> Here's the thing. If you're not in the woods, you're not going to harvest an animal, right? You've got to be out there to take something. But when the rut kicks in, I mean, it's game on. And it's that time we love because anything can happen at any moment. And that's what I love. Oh, oh, I love it. Well, let's see. Shame is today's topic. And I was trying to think, you know, with the hunting stuff, you know, I, I get guys, you know, who've made it, I've made a bad shot on an animal. I've hit a branch and it's, it's kicked back and maybe, you know, wounded an animal that, that took a lot longer to find. And then you feel this incredible, you know, shame, you know, that, you know, did you not make the, the shot that was, you know, best for the animal to, to take it quickly and humanely. And then you, you carry that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think, and I, I always talk about, there's a difference between, you know, like, um, condemnation, which is shame and conviction. You know, condemnation leaves you feeling bloodied and battered. It makes you feel like you're bad. But conviction is is all about, um, you know, maybe what you did was bad, but it didn't change, but it didn't change your heart. You know, you 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 made a bad choice because you bought into a lie, but it didn't change your righteousness. Now, is there a consequence? Yeah, there's a consequence because we have a loving God who wants you to make a better choice. So making a bad shot, let's say on a whitetail or something when you're out there, it's painful, but you don't quit. You you go back and you correct what you did so that you're learning and you're always doing, you know, making better choices every single time as you go out there. You know, I think we can look at, you know, the, the situations that we go through in life too, and that, you know, the enemy would want us to feel shame, not conviction. You know, Romans 8, 1, you know, um, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's not consequences for those actions, but there's no condemnation. And I love, you know, like Psalm 103, you know, he's cast my sins, you know, as far as the east is from the west. But, man, if there's one thing the enemy loves, and we have, we have all experienced it, that he loves to, to make us feel is shame. So in the big five man killers. You know, we started with week one, we gave it to the uh, rhinoceros and that was lack of purpose. Week two, we gave to the lion. That was lack of respect. Number three, we gave to the Cape Buffalo, which was anger. Number four was um, lust, which we gave to the elephant. And so coming back with the final big five animal, the only one that's left, you know, is the leopard. And it just fits so perfectly for this week to be able to, to talk about shame and using the leopard and what he does. Um, you know, during the hunt, after the hunt, and you'll see how I'm going to tie this together. But if, if you've ever had a glimpse of like one of uh, you know Africa's big five cats, 
especially, you know, the leopard, you're, you're, you're one of the lucky few because they're really, really recluse, um, reclusive, recluse, whatever. But I've, I've driven hundreds of miles across the African plains, you know, filming the big five and leopards, you know, that movie, you know, ghosts in the darkness about lions. Well, let me just say leopards are the real ghosts of the darkness. Uh, they are really feared hunters. I mean, they got like the muscles of a bodybuilder uh, and they can run twice as fast as a human. You know, I've always said that if, if leopards had the heart of a lion, you know, they'd rule the plains because their stealth, their, their amazing hearing, it's five times better, five times better than humans. Um, and hunting only in the dark is what make leopards virtually undetectable. You know, um, you know, like an, although like a, a full grown male leopards, they only weigh in at like 165 pounds. They've got, you know, three inch long canines. Their claws are retractable, which is crazy what they can do with those. You know, they can run up to 40 miles an hour. They can jump forward 20 feet and up to 10 feet in the air. I mean, they are the ultimate killer. And they can, they can kill an animal with one you know, swift bite to the neck. So it really does make them one of the world's most absolutely feared and deadliest killers. So when you're, when you're hunting leopards, um, you know, you typically build like a makeshift blind, maybe 15, 20 yards away from a leopard tree. And how do you know it's a leopard tree? You know, because at, at the base of the tree, you're going to find the skulls of like Plains Games uh, animals, like a warthog or an impala. Um, you, you might occasionally find a baboon skull or something, but man, baboons, they're scary. Um, and they're, they can be incredibly aggressive. You know, they've got, they've got two inch canines. I mean, they're, you, you, you hold your finger up and kind of measure like what two inches would be. That would cut in you pretty deep. But like I said, they're incredibly aggressive. And if several baboons are being stalked by a leopard, and I've heard this at nighttime when the leopard's on the prowl and you begin to hear them start to scream, these, these baboons, if there's, if there's several of them together, they will gang up and they will kill that leopard. I mean, they, baboons are, are bad. They're, they're bad news. But leopards are incredibly strong, and they'll take like a 130-pound impala, and they'll drag it right up the tree without even breaking a sweat. I mean, they are so strong. And the thing about cats, you know, whether, you know, your domestic cat or in the wild, they're just ruthless killing machines. I mean, they are master stalkers. They don't just, like, hunt to eat. You know, sometimes, and you've probably seen your house cat do this, um, sometimes they just kill for the thrill of the hunt. You've probably seen your house cat, you know, just keep, you know, get a mouse, pin it down, let it go, chase it again. I mean, cats are the ultimate predator, uh, and they do most of their hunting in the dark. So one of South Africa's most well-known big uh, game guys, his name was Dries Visser Sr., and I've, I've hunted at his property before. He was attacked by a, uh, a wounded leopard. It was after actually one of his, his uh, clients, one of his hunters, made a poor shot on a, uh, a leopard. I think he, if I remember right, he was using a 30-06, and he hit the leopard back more like in the hindquarters. And while Dries, uh, the owner, was searching for it, he, he couldn't figure out where it went. It, if I remember right, it, it sprang up from the long grass where it had gone in and, and hidden. And he was just looking. He, he, he wasn't expecting it to be there, and it took him to the ground. Now, the thing with a leopard, it'll take its, its claws, and with one, it'll dig it into your scalp with one paw. The other one, he'll reach around and lock it into your shoulder with the other, and then it'll, like, um, it'll like grab its prey by the neck as it's holding on to it and sink its canines right into the throat. And once it's got a good hold, it'll take those, 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 uh, those claws, those hind legs, 
and it'll disembowel its catch with it. I mean, these really strong uh, claws, and it's like a matter of seconds. Uh, it's exactly what you've probably seen a house cat do. Like if they've ever gotten into a fight with a neighborhood cat, they kind of grab a hold of each other, and then they use those, those hind feet. And, man, they can just fur gets to be flying. But a leopard can turn the lights out, you know, on a victim, I mean, like in a snap, I mean, on the count of one. So knowing about a leopard's tactics, you know, Dries Visser, he, he immediately, you know, he shoved his fist in the leopard's mouth because he knew that it was going to clamp down on him. And this was after it had already dug its claws into his head, into his shoulder. And that hand kept it from being able to clamp down, you know, on his windpipe. And as, as fate would have it, you know, the, the leopard's um, hind legs weren't both working uh, because of that poor shot that the client had, had made on this thing. So that is actually what kept Dries alive until, you know, the other guys that were with him could hear his screams, you know, and get to him. And, it, you know, it's not pretty, but because they didn't have a gun when they, when they went running to him, they literally had to grab a tire pump and to get it off of them. That's what they ended up having to take the, uh, the leopard down. Can you imagine one of the deadliest animals on the planet and you got to take it down with a tire pump? But I guess it was like sometimes, you know, in the minutes that followed, no, I have some pictures of this. I'm not going to, you not going to share these, but he's sitting up on a picnic table. They got him out of there on the truck, got him back and he's sitting on this picnic table and his, his, his hands and arms are all bandaged up. And they literally had been you know, using, you know, like a, like a sewing needle or some kind of a kit to be able to stitch him back together. And as I'm, as I'm, looking at him and some, I mean, there were spots he was flayed down to the bone and that's how sharp these, these claws can be. But when I looked at these pictures, what I noticed was so weird. And we're not very long after the attack. As I looked, he's smiling. I mean, he's, he's literally smiling in the picture and I mean, he's, he's covered. I mean, he was covered with blood. And, and so I, I asked, I said, why was he smiling? And the response was, if you had just survived, you know, like a tornado of teeth and claws trying to tear you limb from limb, you'd be smiling too. But, you know, thankfully, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Dries's own father had instructed him, you know, as, as a boy growing up, that the first thing you have to do if you're attacked by a leopard is you got to get that fist in his mouth so he can't get his, his teeth into your neck. So Dries had basically renewed his mind so many times with that lesson that it ended up saving his life. Pretty cool. So, you know, each week we go from the wilds and bring it back to the home front. So let's kind of take this, you know, this, this attack. How does that even begin to, to tie into shame? You know, I've, I've always been fascinated with, with reading about, you know, other cultures, you know, how they deal with like punishment for those, you know, who've committed crimes or, or sins. And sometimes it can be crazy how they deal with it. And in uh, ancient Roman culture, if someone committed murder, you know, their punishment was to be forced to have that, the corpse of his victim chained to his back wherever he went. And the reason was it was done so that that murderer would not only see and smell the rottenness of his sin, but the maggot-infested corpse strapped to his bare back would also infect him, the criminal, causing a really slow, painful, really nasty-smelling, shameful death. And so... Taking this back to the leopard, you know, I talked about, you know, like a leopard tree, you know, you'll find these skulls, but you'll also find the carcasses because when that leopard is done with that animal, which he has drug up into the tree, he will, you know, when it's done, it'll fall to the ground and you can smell it. You can see it. So after he's devoured that 
kill. And he's left, you know, that carcass at the, at the base of the tree. Um, it's really an eerie feeling when you walk up and you can just smell, you know, these, these rotting corpses. You know the smell of death. When you smell it, you know what it is. But the same holds true with how Satan works. He drags up, you know, both our deepest sins or, or sins that someone else committed against us. And he does that, you know, through lies and makes us, you know, feel the shame. And it, it gets strapped, in, in essence, it straps those lies, that shame to our back where we feel the weight. And we continue to experience, you know, the devastation that those things have caused. You know, in essence, the enemy's lies have chained us to the corpse of our sins. He doesn't want us to know that we are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. You know, I've, I've said this before, but we talk about the Christian army. Why is it that the Christian army sometimes are the only army that shoot their wounded, and they don't just shoot their wounded? If they're unhealthy, they'll drag you know, the wounded that they just shot to the, like, to the end of the city and hang it up like an effigy for everyone else to, to see. Like, you see what this person did? You see how we're using shame to make them look bad? Don't do what they did or the same thing is going to happen to you. You know, that's not a safe place. It's nowhere that you're going to be able to take, like last week we talked about confessing our temptations. It's, you're not going to be building a safe place. Shame is never a healing agent because shame always keeps you feeling worse about yourself and you will never, ever be able to look at yourself under that God lens like I've talked about, that you're, you're good enough because of Christ being in you. Um, you know, as you're listening to this, I know it's probably weird hearing me talk about like a decaying corpse or something being strapped to a killer's back. But I, I say that because, you know, I work with people almost every day, you know, whether it's through in-person or through um, um, Zoom call or email or whatever, text, whatever, that have that dead weight of shame strapped to their backs. And the scary thing is, is that somehow they've learned to live with it, if you can call that living. You know, it's like these people, when you, when you have a chance to see some that are so held down by shame. It's like watching that, what was that TV series, uh, The Walking Dead. And, you know, we, we talked about, you know, lack of purpose, you know, craving for respect, anger, lust, you know, bitterness, unforgiveness, worthlessness, uh, resentment. You know, all those things create shame. And those things can lead to depression, you know, acting out, like we talked about, you know, in the last episode, you know, running to porn or affairs. Um, but it can even lead to more serious mental disorders, you know, if not, healed. Shame is not a healer. Shame leaves, you know, rotting corpses everywhere because of something you did or something that might have been done to you in the past, you know, months or even even years ago. You know, over time, shame leaks its poisons into you. You know, I see how the weight of shame, you know, bends others over in excruciating pain, literally, physically. Um, You know, I'm one who's not just been bent over in pain as a result of shame, but I wouldn't be here, honestly, doing these podcasts if the shame that threatened to destroy my life hadn't been rooted out. And I mean dealt with, I mean ruthlessly. I mean, with I don't want to say with extreme violence, but in the way of using Scripture and using my identity to go after the lies that I was, I was buying into. So I spoke... Uh, 
you know, briefly about my shame in a, in a previous podcast, but I want to, I, I want to go somewhere because I think it's important. I want to be upfront and honest with you guys about a dark part of my story you know, that I feel is, is one of the biggest trust builders that I could do with you, you know, so that you know that I've walked that, that dark path. Um, you know, that you, you walk the talk that so many of us, you know, that path that we've, we've stumbled down and, and, and honestly didn't think we could ever get back up again. So I've shared some of this, but I think I'm just going to go into a little bit, maybe more of a, a vulnerable and honesty um, kind of a scenario here. So it was, it was like back, I think it was like the summer of 2006. And, you know, like, like all of us, you know, we, we go through times and marriages that are more difficult than others. But when we get into that, like almost like a crazy cycle where it just seems like nothing is getting better. And, and I know a lot of you know what I'm talking about. It's like, why does everything have to turn into an argument, right? And the, you begin to become afraid about, uh, you know, anything because you don't want something to turn into an argument. And, you know, this is, and I was divorced and I've, I've, I've t- talked about that before. And this was before that happened, but it had gotten into a really unhealthy cycle and a healthy cycle's it's because of two people, you know, not handling things well. It's, it's never just a one-sided deal. Uh, and I think we're, we're honest with ourselves. You know, we know we have personal responsibility in that. But I had gotten to a place where I, I didn't like me. And I, you know, I'd been on the road touring and music, and I'd left all that to go do something else, actually serve people more like w- within the church. And I was used to hearing words of life, words of encouragement, words of praise, you know, wow, I love your music. Oh, I've been listening to it for years. My life was changed. And you can't be human and not have some of that begin to go into your head and make you start believing you're getting your good enough from the things that you did or how people see you. And you try to bury it. And I was trying to bury it, trying to lean on the outside. But on the inside, I was really struggling with, I was addicted to having you know, other people's good opinions. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I was codependent. I needed that. I, and, and so I ended up getting into a, a relationship. Um, and, you know, I, I say before that it wasn't a sexual relationship and it wasn't. But let me say this. When your heart or your words go anywhere else outside of your marriage, it is a form of an affair. It's what it is. You can't just candy coat it. It's what it is. Um, so that's exactly where I got uh, caught up in, went down a path with someone who was giving me, you know, words of praise and all kinds of things that I felt like I wasn't getting at home that I thought I deserved. Remember that, that, that lack of respect men don't struggle with respect unless they feel like they're not getting it from you. And then, and this person's words were, um, meeting an unhealthy need, something that needed healing. And it wasn't getting rooted out by trying harder. There wasn't behavior modification that was, that was fixing it. Because at the time, guys, I didn't know where my one true identity came from. And I know that sounds weird. I had been an ordained pastor for a number of years at this point. But like I've talked before, I grew up with more of a workspace theology that it's what you do that equals who you are, rather than your identity being through Christ who is now in you and making you good enough. And so, you know, as these words and everything begin to be going on, and I got into this um, uh, emotional affair, whatever you want to call it, um, Man, I, I was feeling, I was feeling like crap. I got, I don't know any other word to describe it because I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. You know, you're, you're serving God over here out of this side of your mouth, 
but your mind, your thoughts are going somewhere else? You know, what do we do with that? We're going to unpack Romans 7 in just a minute where Paul is talking about that, and it's going to be so key in us understanding where our identity comes from and the difference between that and our identity coming from um, our sin or the good things that we've done. So, you know, when all this happened and, and I um, confessed all this stuff, you know, basically getting busted for it um, and saying, yeah, I did it. I, I'm guilty of that crime. You know, it went on for like probably four or six weeks or whatever it was. I don't even remember. I try not to, to be honest with you. Why? Because of shame. And, you know, I, I battle just like anybody else. I have to come back and go, you know, there was some great lessons that changed me forever out of that. But if I stop and start going down the path and forgetting that my identity is in Christ, I'll begin to feel shame. So take that in mind. Just because you're a believer and you renew your mind, the enemy can still get his foot, you know, in the door sometimes. You have to keep reminding yourself and renewing your mind with who you are. So, you know, when all this stuff happened, you know, I went through out-of-state counseling, um, in-state counseling, you know, 90-day financial planning, to thinking maybe that was the problem. Uh, went through a, a 12-step recovery group. You know, I drove like an hour and a half each way I didn't, because of shame. I didn't want to do it locally because I didn't want anyone to know because what would they think about me, right? And it, it was it was the one of the worst times, if not the worst, probably was the worst time in my life. Um, you know, so bad that I contemplated, you know, ending it all. And I came very, very close. Um, but God had a way of, of, of and, I, and I've shared that before here, how, you know, in that moment, um, I heard on the radio, I think it was Tony Evans, and he was talking about freedom in Christ and our identity being in him, not in our sin. Well, moved my family, you know, back out from that state to where I was currently living at the time. And God took me through a friend who had actually been through an affair himself. And he said, I want you to meet this guy. I want him, I want you to just hear what he has to say around this. And I'm thinking, oh, great. I have to go, you know, throw my stuff in front of somebody else and just feel the shame a little bit more. And when he took me to this guy's basement, I mean, what he said changed everything, everything. And I'll never forget when I told him my story, he looked at me and I had tears pouring. When you're grieving like that, you have snot coming. It's not a pretty thing. And when I told him my story, he replied, he said, you know, Brent, he said, it's a good thing the real you didn't do that sin. And I kind of gave him the one raised eyebrow and I said, no, I'm, I'm guilty of this. He goes, let me say it again. He said, it's a good thing the real you didn't do that sin. I wasn't sure, you know, obviously what he was talking about because I, I knew in my flesh, you know, in my mind where, where things had gone, even though it wasn't, like I said, a, a sexual relationship, it was absolutely an emotional one. So he opened up Romans 7 to me, you know, and like I said, I'd been an ordained pastor for a number of years, but I'd never understood Romans 7 until he broke it down. You know, Paul talks about how he does the sin that he doesn't want to do, but then he explains how it's not the real him doing it. See, I wasn't connecting those dots. I was connecting my sin to my, my worth and value, my identity. And I was also doing the same thing with the good works that I had done. And that's sometimes why I could be, become prideful or thinking that I was better than someone else because I was doing ministry or whatever. And then he took me to explain this whole thing. He took me to 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And I want to explain that before I move on. You know, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 talks about how we're made up of a body and a soul and a spirit. We're not just made up of two parts like some theologies would teach. You know, Paul's making it clear here. We're made up of a body 
That's the thing you can see, your flesh, or made up of a soul, which isn't the eternal part of you. That's where your mind, your will, your thoughts, your choices, your emotions all are. But your spirit is the core of who you really are. And you go to Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about the moment that we truly believe, you know, God puts his promised Holy Spirit inside of us, guaranteeing our inheritance into the kingdom of heaven. It's like a seal. He marks us with that. That is now my one true identity. So when Paul says he does the things he doesn't want to do, but it's not the real him doing it, that's what he's talking about. Because there's a separation between my soul and my spirit. Yes, did I commit that sin in the flesh? Did I commit that sin in my thoughts? Yes. But my core, my spirit, never, ever changed. It never lost its righteousness because that comes from Jesus Christ alone. But man, the enemy, you know how he beats you up, wants you to feel shame for anything you've done. And just like that, that leopard, he, he wants to drag your sin up into a tree for everyone to see so they can just see it right up there. There it is. Or, and they can, the smell, you know, of, of, of we think about the stench from our sin, we're thinking everyone can, can smell this. They can see it. And so we put our head down, we hide. You don't have to hide. You know, my, my marriage ended up in divorce a few years later. You know, something that I never, ever, ever wanted to have to go through. It's not a, a, an easy thing. It's not just a, you know, a, a cutting, and it's not just like a ripping of a paper or something. It's a tearing. It tears families apart, uh, apart. children, relationships, all your friendships. People are going to say things like, you know, I'm so sorry you had to go through that, but we still love you, and then you don't see them again. I think sometimes they don't know what to do with it, but I think sometimes it's because judgment. And I think, you know, I think the last time I checked, that's a sin as well. You know, for about nine years, I, I worked so hard on me. I knew I couldn't blame anyone else on my unhealthy choices. So I had to look at myself in the mirror because I knew I'd been getting my worth and value from the wrong place. And I knew I needed, I, me, like we, who's the only one that you can fix yourself, I needed that time to get it all sorted out. You know, I, during that time, you know, I, I used to say I had to meet with counselors and pastors, but no, it wasn't a got to, or I had to, I got to. It was a blessing to meet with, you know, some great counselors, pastors. I mean, even my denomination's, you know, credentialing team, when I had gone through the divorce, you know, they, they do these things just to make sure that you're healthy, that there wasn't something else going on, that maybe they should remove you. You know, everything was, I don't want to say it was okay, but everything was okay um, as far as moving forward being healthy. You know, my credentialing wasn't taken away or anything, but there were requirements, which there should have been, to make sure that I was getting my thoughts straight because it needed to be, to be able to walk and continue to help other people. You know, they were really gracious, but they held me capable, I like that word, um, to continue growing. And I am, I am so grateful for those years. But you know, all this new tr truth about identity I just talked about, it changed everything. I mean, everything in my life everything, you know, but did, does it, or did it, does it keep the enemy from, from trying to attack me to still use other people's opinions against me? <laughs> we, when, when I got remarried to Stacy, you know, and I've talked on here before, one of my touring partners years ago was Stephen Curtis Chapman, and he was coming through town and I had, it's been like a week since I had been, you know, remarried and I was going to be walking right back into the university where I went to school, where he and I went to school. And as we're walking in, you know, I began to feel nervous because, you know, of the divorce I've been through, thinking there's going to be people there that I'm going to see. And if you've ever experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And my wife was nervous. 
And as we're walking in, you know, I just looked at her and I said, you know, walk humbly. Remember whose you are in Christ. And I said, and then walk in that quiet confidence, you know, in him. Because the only one whose opinion truly matters is God's. And, you know, and as much as we knew that truth, I would be absolutely lying if I didn't say that it was a struggle to stay in that truth, you know, walking in that door and seeing a lot of people I knew. I mean, get this. So within seconds, I mean, literally, this is how quick the enemy went after me. Within seconds of walking into the lobby of that auditorium, I saw a group of friends that I knew well. I mean, so, some of these I'd known and loved for like 30 years. And as I approached the group, there was a woman who I thought would handle the situation with grace, you know, very involved in church and, and, uh, and then she would, would, would handle it with love. But instead she looked at me like through the eyes of like Medusa. <laughs> you know, if I'd been not secure in my identity, I think I would have turned to stone in that moment. I mean, I felt it. And I think that was the intent. That's when we, when we shoot that arrow of shame at someone, it's, his intent is to you know, cause that fire that they're hoping maybe will change you or make you pay for something or whatever it was. You know, her intent, there's no doubt, it was to hurt me. And for a few moments, she absolutely succeeded. But as I walked up to her, you know, ready to reach out and give her a hug, again, she gave me this, this stare of disgust, this loathing, like this intense anger. You know, in that moment, I felt as if she was like a, let me take a, back to the wilds here for a second, like a thousand pound grizzly bear, right? And, you know, it had been, she was placed like right on top of my head, directly in her mouth. And she's trying to devour me. It's like I could smell the decaying flesh of her judgment in that moment, right? You know, her eyes were like, like canines being drugged across my, my scalp, or dragged across my scalp. But l- luckily, you know, grizzlies, you know, they can't open their, their mouth far enough to swallow your whole head. But they're going to try. I mean, unless you have the right weapon and the courage to stop, you know, the onslaught of what's going on. Because those who shun, now hear this, those who shun have judgment caught in their throats, but they can't eat us unless we let them. That's a big line. I want to say that again. This is one of those nuggets I would take away. I want you to, to, to have in your back pocket to think about. Those who shun have judgment caught in their throats, but they can't eat us unless we let them. Again, why would we give power to someone else that didn't die for us? Remember, Satan is a thief who wants to rob you of your worth and value, right? And he wants to rip out any sense of purpose that remains in you. You know, Jesus says the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But what does Jesus say? He says, you know, I, I came to give you life. You know, that's what big cats do just for the pleasure of it, that, that kill, steal, and destroy. They, and they do it in the darkness. You know, how does the enemy accomplish that task with us? He drives us into the dark places. And then he controls you by using his best weapon, which is shame. Go back and look in the garden. Here you've got Adam and Eve. You know, where are you? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Shame. Who told you you were naked? You know, the father of lies. Jesus calls him out. You know, in John 8, 44, he's a father of lies. When he speaks, there is no truth within him, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan guilts people into believing that their performance-based striving will create soul transformation, right? Just try harder. Uh Uh-uh. Shame will rot your soul. Jesus says that the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy, like I said. But the line after that I love, he goes on to say, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So what is the greatest way 
to tell, you know, if you're buying into the lies of the thief or walking like in the truth of Christ. You know, the thief whispers lies of fear and shame, the language of the dead and the dying. And he does that to bleed you out and drive you into the darkest places. But Jesus beckons you into the light with grace, with his promises of hope and love, giving you a new name, proclaiming his victory over death through the power of his crucifixion and resurrection. So let me end with this. Brothers, sisters, if you've been wounded by the enemy, I want you to listen. Do not let your past hold you back and never let it label you. Because as a believer, you are absolutely free because you've been unleashed. So get off the floor. Get on your, your knees. Have Jesus show you who you really are and then get on your feet and go make disciples. There's a world out there hurting that needs desperately to know what forgiveness and the promise of new life looks like. And remember that if we can do this together, we will make a difference that will last for generations because through Christ, we are the resistance. I love you guys and I am so honored that you would take the time and listen. But don't just listen. Allow this to penetrate deep and change you at your core. You are worth it, and that's why Christ gave his life for you. See you next time.